To a view from the ditch. I'm James Larkin, and as always, I'm joined by William Dalton. Although virtually this time, what's going on, William? Have you moved to an exotic island or something to uh, live out your COVID days? Um, not exactly an exotic island. I've um, I've relocated to an undisclosed location in the Midlands. Ah, oh, the Midlands. Te- te- temporarily. Pretty, uh, well, sounds pretty exotic to me. You know. Well, yeah, a few that, nice spots true. down there. You know. Offaly, Longford, Westmeath, huh? It's true. Anyway, uh, your listening will be uninterrupted and we'll be still broadcasting uh, through this virtual format every Saturday evening at 5.30pm and also on all your podcast apps. Um, I'd also like to remind everyone to please get in touch with us. We're not hearing nearly enough from you. Um, Complaints or compliments are always welcome. you can get us on a view from the ditch at gmail.com or on Twitter at AVFTD Radio. So anyway, William, what's cracking? Um, various things, I suppose. One thing, the row in the Green Party, or the rows, I shouldn't say uh, huh? singular, in the Green Party, but in particular, the one over CETA rolls on. CETA, for those who haven't been following is the tr- uh, free trade agreement between the European Union and Canada. And what and, is exactly the uh, sticking point? Well, there are many sticking points, but I think the biggest concern people have is this, it would introduce what's called an investor court system where corporations could sue states over regulations that affect their profits. What NASA Harrigan um, TD Green TD has been opposed to it. She said ratification would damage the climate movement. She said if it's ratified, it will fundamentally shift the balance of power away from communities and into the hands of multinationals, multinational corporations. Too late, NASA. Well, <laughs> yeah, perhaps, but this certainly, a lot of people are, especially in the environmental movement, are very clear that this will uh, do a lot of harm. Um, it's also something the Greens, of course, specifically campaigned against uh, while, while they were in opposition. And it wasn't mentioned in the programme for government. Uh, and now the leadership are arguing that they did tacitly commit to it in the programme for government, even though, as Patrick Costello, TD, pointed out, well, he said not only was it not in the programme for government, it was explicitly removed from the draft during negotiations. And Patrick Costello said, quote, for it to come back now raises questions over the whole programme for government and that has the potential to weaken any Green Party wins that are in the document. And then the... Just, of, sorry, the, just before we move on oh. to that, the, the, the Greens, like the reason we bring it up is a lot of Green members now are threatening to quit the party over this. Well, and know, some of them have quit. Some, some have obviously gone already, as we've discussed on this programme, and, and indeed 
well, among other times when we spoke to Sir McHugh. But Eamon Ryan, apparently concerned members of the public have been writing to Green TDs and sending them clips of Eamon Ryan arguing against CETA a couple mm. of years ago. So, uh, but the vote, uh, obviously the reason, the reason this is in the news, the vote on, on ratification is, is coming up. Oh, well, we'll be sure to update our uh, loyal listeners on that one when it happens. Indeed. Uh, and then another ongoing controversy is the mother and baby homes. It was really shocking news out of it this week. So obviously the programme before last, we, we covered this in detail with, with Sarah Taft McGuire. And survivors have now come forward to say that they weren't informed that the tape recordings of their personal interviews they gave to the commission were to be destroyed. The, the report, somewhere in the text of the report, it does say that they, they were destroyed and they were only used as, quote, an aid memoir for people who were compiling the report. But several survivors now have come forward and said that's not that was not their understanding. And also, don't they have a right to their uh, recording? But I think, like, in terms of GDPR, as far as I know, but even if they do or don't, it, it, am I right in saying they've already been destroyed? So it appears. God, and, but and are I the saw, transcripts left? I don't think so, no. Jesus. Because I think they what were taken... Like? They, they were... What it says is they were used to form the basis of a kind of general summary rather than being quoted verbatim. Again, this was not necessarily the understanding of the people, of the survivors who gave the interviews. And this is bearing in mind that survivors, many of the people who, um, who testified have come up out and said they don't recognise their evidence as reported yeah. in, in the commission and now they're it's finding that the record of it has been destroyed. Be destroyed you know which like again speaks to this lack of like just this consistent theme of a lack of communication a lack of openness and that's both with survivors and with the public and with the doll now you've got you've organised another exciting guest for us this week that's right. We're we were fortunate to be to be joined by by Melanie Steinhardt, who spent, I believe, six years working in criminal justice reform in the United States. People will be familiar to some extent with mass incarceration in the states, the highest incarceration rate in the world, of course, the world's largest prison population. So we talked about all that. Uh, Mel, uh, you know, a lot has a lot of insight in, into that world, and. We talked a little bit about the prospects for change under the current administration or, you know, what she makes of, of that. Yeah. So thanks so much, Mel, for, for joining us on the show. Oh, I'm really delighted that you asked me to and nice to be talking to you, William. Yeah, likewise. Um, so if you could start, I wonder, by, by telling us your own experience, how you ended up in the area of criminal justice reform in the States and what it was like working, working in that sector. Yeah. So um, I grew up, so I'm from Brooklyn. I grew up in a fairly conservative household. Um, I was kind of told if people are in prison, it's because they deserve to be there. Um, And I never really questioned it. And I never knew anybody who had ever been to prison or to jail. And then when I was in college, I read about the Supreme Court decision in 2011 that deemed that California state prisons were in violation of the Eighth Amendment, which is the ban on cruel and unusual punishment, just because of how overcrowded they were. 
like in the California state prisons, there would be 50 plus people sharing one toilet. There were preventable deaths happening once, twice a week. And this was shocking to me. And I just started to read more and more about the criminal justice system and really understand that while my life had never been personally touched by it, for many people, um, that is a day-to-day reality in their families and in their communities. Um, and that it's just a matter of circumstance, um, a matter of racial circumstance that I had never been touched by it. And I began to learn about the horrors of the criminal justice system. Um, Even calling it the criminal justice system is a joke. And a lot of people will call it the criminal legal system for that reason. Um, But I was learning about how so many people never go to trial. They're just pressured into taking plea deals. Um, Poor people being forced into the system because they can't pay pay cash bail. Um, You know, that in some places, pregnant women were shackled while giving birth and then their children taken away from them within 24 hours of birth. Like you would not even take a puppy away from its mother until six weeks. Um, And then I read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And I realized this was all far deeper and more sinister than I had ever imagined. So when I moved back to New York after college, um, I just really wanted to get into the criminal justice reform field. So I started volunteering um, with a horticultural therapy program on Rikers Island, which is a jail um, on an island near Queens in New York. And I helped run group sessions at Housing Works, which is a nonprofit that works with people who are living with HIV and AIDS and homelessness. So there's a big overlap with the incarcerated population there. And I also started volunteering for a group called Just Leadership USA, which amplifies the voices of formerly incarcerated leaders who are already advocates in their own communities. And I just did that until I landed a full-time job, um, which was with a nonprofit called College and Community Fellowship. Um, Bit of a mouthful, not super branding there, Um, but that focuses on higher education access for formerly incarcerated women. And that is where I worked until last September as their director of fundraising and communications. And basically everything that I know, I learned from my colleagues there and the students that we worked with. Okay. That issue of access to higher education, I wonder if you could talk about what it was like, what were the challenges advocating for that and, you know, the kinds of obstacles that you came up against? Yeah, so I think the first thing to realize is that in the last 30 or 40 years, in general, public education has um, seen huge disinvestment and the criminal justice system has seen huge investment. So there is definitely a correlation there. uh, And the level of literacy rates among people who end up in the criminal justice system is typically very low. Um, So a lot of folks who are coming out of prison or jail have very low education levels in the first place. And many of them were never told that college was an opportunity for them, that it was accessible to them at all. Now, when you get down into like the actual practical logistics of why college is not typically accessible for people who have experienced the criminal justice system. For one thing, when you apply to college, in a lot of college applications, you have to check a box saying whether or not you have a felony conviction. Uh, And colleges can reject you for that with very little oversight over the processes associated with their evaluation of who you are as a person and why that should count as a rejection. 
Then there is obviously the cost of, um, of college. Everybody knows that American college and university is insanely expensive. Um, and in 1994, there was um, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act passed in Congress, which among many other devastating things also removed Pell Grant eligibility for incarcerated students. And that's a federal grant available on a needs basis um, for, for college. So just for example, before that bill, there were 70 college and prison programs in New York state. And after the bill, there were four. So the access to any sort of educational enrichment programs in prison had been reduced as well. Now, when you get out of prison, college can also be really hard because maybe you have spent 10, 15 years in prison and you don't know what a bursar's office is or what a registrar's office is or how to apply for financial aid. There are all of these really unique issues that your typical college admissions counselor is not going to be able to help you with. Um, then there's the schedule. For example, if you are on probation or parole and you have to do regular um, meetings, weekly or daily meetings with your parole or probation officer, um, which usually involves sitting online or in a waiting room for hours and hours, then you can't even really make it to a job on time, much less complete your schoolwork and go to class. Uh, maybe you're juggling school and work and kids. So there's a lot of um, barriers on the individual level, but then also on the structural level. And you were dealing with people, am I right in thinking, who were presently incarcerated as well as people who had... Who had uh, so we did have... Yeah, we did have a mentorship program for women who are currently incarcerated, but we weren't providing educational opportunities for them. In terms of the actual admissions to and guidance through college, that was for women who were back in the community who had come home. But we did have uh, some partnerships with other nonprofit organizations that provided uh, college classes in prison. Um, a big one was the Bard Prison Initiative. And um, for listeners, if you are able to access the College Behind Bars documentary, it's a really fantastic, uh, really fantastic look into what college looks like in prison. Um, and it's it's so beautiful and moving. Wow, okay. Um, I want to just take a step back and um, maybe as, as someone who's, who's worked in the area, if you could, if you could give Give us a kind of a broader overview um, of the scale and the racialized character of, of the American prison system. Well, are you holding on to your hat, William? <laughs> um, so the States has about 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. So that's the first thing to understanding the scale. On a given day, there are about 2.3 million people locked up with an additional 3.6 million people under some other form of correctional supervision. And there are 77 million people out there with a criminal record. So over a third of people in the US have an immediate family member that has been to prison or jail. And there's 80 billion a year spent on incarceration. That's with a B, 80 billion. That's not even counting all the other costs associated with the system. And the US has similar crime rates to other Western countries. So it's not that there's higher crime and that's why there's more incarceration. 
it's because there is more criminalization. More things are considered criminal behavior and more people are arrested and convicted of crimes. Um, and yes, really important to touch on that racism issue. It is central to how the criminal justice system functions. Um, the first police patrols were slave catching patrols and we see that connective tissue today. Um, and just for example, black people in the States are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of white people. I could tell you that in Louisiana, there are literally black people incarcerated who are picking cotton and who are working in the governor's mansion. It's part and parcel of the system. Of course, it's, it's become something of an, an internationally discussed issue in recent years, partly because of, I think, the book you mentioned, The New Jim Crow. And then there was the, the film, the 2016 film 13th by Ava DuVernay, which I think was released just in the run up to the, the election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, a lot of people that I worked with are, are in that film. Um, those criminal justice advocates were all the folks that I was working with um, in my job in New York. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I would encourage yeah, anyone who hasn't seen that to check it out. It was very well informative for me anyway. Um, to tell, tell people a little bit about what that's all about. Yeah. So that film is called 13th in reference to the 13th Amendment. Um, which was the amendment passed to end slavery, but it did not because the amendment reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So that amendment literally says, slavery is now illegal, except for people who are convicted of a crime. And, and as you say, it's... Um... The black population is incredibly uh, overrepresented. I read that yeah, to express what you said, another figure that black people make up around a third of the prison population versus around 12% of the American adult population. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder, one of the things that always strikes me as incredibly you know, harsh and, and at odds with it, with, you know, the ideals of liberal democracy, the idea of the felons losing the right to vote. Um, I'm really glad that you said that. Uh, I think that there is nothing more obvious <laughs> in uncovering the values and character of a country than selectively targeting a specific population to imprison and then removing the right to vote. There are only three states, uh, it's actually two states plus DC, where people with criminal convictions never lose the right to vote, including while incarcerated. Um, but in many states, your right to vote is permanently removed if you've been con convicted of a felony. And do you see any, we're, we're going to, I think, get into the questions of reform in more detail in a little bit, but do you see any prospect of that changing in the foreseeable future? Well, that's a state issue. That, that happens mm -hmm. on a state-by-state -state basis. So um, in New York, the organization that I worked for, College and Community Fellowship, they have a lot of advocacy going on to restore voting rights for people with criminal convictions. And we've def definitely seen this be successful. So in 2018, 
a big story in the news was about Florida's Amendment 4, uh, which was a bill that would restore the right to vote for people with felony convictions. And in Florida, there weren't a lot of people registered to vote in the first place who would vote in favor of that bill. So my organization, College and Community Fellowship, along with a wider group of formerly incarcerated advocates, went down to Florida, registered 84,000 people to vote, and got the bill to pass. Now, the bigger question is about enforcement of such a bill, because after it passed, the Florida state legislature said, okay, maybe your, vo your voting rights are restored, but not if you owe any uh, fees or fines to the state. And let me tell you, there are not good records in the, that system, so people couldn't even find out whether or not they owed any fees or fines. You might have heard that Michael Bloomberg had ended up paying for a lot of people's uh, debts to be cleared so that way they could then vote in the election. So I have a lot of different feelings about that, but there are efforts happening on a state-by-state -state basis and there definitely are inroads to restoring voting rights for people with felony convictions. Um, and for me, that is the biggest thing that I want to see happen in terms of reform. Mm. Just to, to come back to yeah, the, the scale of the prison uh, system, as you said, by far the highest incarceration rate in the world in the States. And what if we could, if you could say a little bit about you know, why that is the case, how it came to be. Mm -hmm. So we can't talk about the ballooning of the incarceration rate without talking about the history of racism and policing in the United States. So as I mentioned, the first police patrols were slave catching patrols. Um, and then when slavery was ended, we actually saw these huge strides um, and advancements in the African-American community. And here I say African-American because it means African-American. Most black people in the United States at that time were African-American. They were people who had literally been stolen from their home in Africa. At other times, I'm going to say black because the black community now encompasses more than just African-Americans, right? There's Caribbeans, there's immigrants, there's all kinds of different people who have dark skin and are therefore called black. So there were all of these strides, despite the fact that, um, as the scholar Brian Stevenson puts it, after the war, we tend to think of the mass movement of Black people from South to North as this kind of like pioneering post-war moment of optimism and hope. But as he describes it, those were people who were refugees from slavery. Despite the fact that they were refugees, there were these huge advancements Three years after the Emancipation Proclamation, 15% of elected people in the South were Blacks, and literacy rates were jumping. It was amazing. And then came the backlash. And the backlash was all of these bogus laws selectively applied to Black people. So vagrancy, mischief, you've all heard of Emmett Till, who was beaten and drowned for allegedly whistling at a white woman, all of these ins absolutely insane racist laws and behaviors perpetuated by law enforcement. Um, and once people were convicted, then they could be legally enslaved again and actually rented out 
to plantations. That would happen post-Civil War. And that is the world we're still living in today, where we have Black and Brown communities living every day with police harassment and brutality, decades of disinvestment in public education and in the economies of these neighborhoods. And of course, there's also these neighborhoods that are ghettoized because of redlining, which was a practice um, in the middle of the 1900s, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, where banks would not give loans, mortgages to Black people, therefore kind of um, forcing forcing people to live in a small area without access to better public schools. Um, and then the neighborhoods where people were forced into, um, the only neighborhoods where they were allowed to live, um, those economies also suffered disinvestment. So now what we see is that the criminal justice system is composed primarily of non-white people who have low literacy rates, who have low incomes, who can't pay their, their bail, and who are more likely to be arrested and convicted of a crime. So there's jail, there's prison, there's probation, there's parole. What do all these mean? Um, and for listeners who don't know, jail is where people go where they're arrested before a conviction while they're awaiting trial. Prison is where people go when they're convicted of a crime and sentenced. Probation is part of someone's original sentence. So it keeps someone under supervision for a certain amount of time after they're released from prison. And then parole would be early release from prison, usually after spending many years incarcerated and typically parole is granted based on behavior while incarcerated. Um, so I hope that that's helpful. So now to talk about the sort of ballooning, the mass incarceration. So mm -hmm. the prison population had actually remained pretty steady until the seventies, um, until Nixon declared the war on drugs. And by the way, the war on drugs was declared before crack cocaine was ever introduced. There was a lot of media around crack cocaine uh, that helped to justify the war on drugs, but the war on drugs was completely senseless from the very, very beginning. Mm. Um, so that was the beginning of mass incarceration. And then under Reagan, the prison population doubled. So it went from about 400,000 to about 800,000. Um, that was in part because of the 1984 Sentencing Reform Act, which literally dropped rehabilitation from the purpose of punishment. And then the 90s were a very, very tough on crime era. Both Democrats and Republicans really wanted to prove that they were not soft on crime. Um, and this resulted in the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which people typically just call the 1994 crime bill and which Biden drafted the Senate legislation for. 
Um, and that bill was horrifying. That bill created new death penalty offenses and new federal offenses. It eliminated access to higher education for incarcerated people. It put 100,000 more police on the streets and it provided incentives to build and expand correctional facilities in states that would enforce mandatory minimum sentencing for people who had committed violent crimes. And here, I might also wanna tell you a little bit about violent crimes. So there's a lot that I can say about this absurd dichotomy between violent and nonviolent. But something that's also important to know is that violent crimes are defined differently in different places. In some places, destruction of property is considered violent. So in some places, people are convicted and sentenced of a violent crime without ever having intended to harm another human or harming another human. Wow, okay. So it was really in the 90s that mass incarceration absolutely skyrocketed. And there are different populations that have grown. So just for example, between 1980 and 2014, the uh, population of women imprisoned grew by over 700%. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and as you say, the bill was co-authored by Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. um, he was proudly, you know, quote unquote, tough on crime in that period and he has defended the bill although he's been criticized for it yeah. more, more recently yeah don't have a lot of trust there another structural part of how unjust the system is um, we can see in the system of collateral consequences so when somebody finishes serving out a sentence their sentence is not truly finished being served because in the states, there are over 40,000 different laws across the 50 states um, that make it very, very, very difficult for people to rebuild their lives when they come home. And those are what are commonly called collateral consequences. So those can be everything from bans on public housing, bans on access to food stamps and other social welfare benefits, um, it can be having to check the box, were you convicted of a felony um, on your school application or on your job application. There are so many things that make life so much harder once you return home that the sentence never ends. As Michelle Alexander put it, it creates a caste system in society where some people are just untouchable essentially um, and I think that that is a really, really important thing to understand because when we say there's 2.3 million people locked up and another 3.6 million people under correctional supervision, folks might hear that and think, okay, well, there's over 300 million people in the States. Okay. But you know what? There's 77 million people out there with a criminal record. And mm -hmm. those are 77 million people who are unable to live life to their full potential because of these collateral consequences. So if we could move on to talking a little bit about reform or perhaps you know, beyond the idea of reform, sometimes in the debate about mass incarceration, the, the idea is raised of prison abolition. It's been promoted by people, intellectuals like Angela Davis, among others. I wonder if you could kind of guide us a little bit through that debate 
reform and abolition, really, really good question. Um, and I think that we can think of it as other issues on the left, similar to other issues on the left. So there is a tension between what people think is realistic and what people think is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to characterize it. So the abolitionist vision is one where all incarceration and institutionalization is replaced with systems of rehabilitation and community investment. Um, and some folks in this movement want there to be no government controlled systems replacing any types of corrections. Um, and the idea between the idea behind abolition is that the carceral system can be traced back to slavery and it's a racist capitalist regime um, and that it functions to oppress black people and other politically marginalized group in order to maintain a racial capitalist regime. Um, and that what we should be doing, what we can and should be doing is imagining and building a more humane society um, that does not rely on locking people up in cages as an intervention, but instead meets human needs and actually looks at the root causes of social problems. Reform is promoted by people of a few different approaches. Some reformers say, okay, the carceral system is necessary and it can be made more effective and humane. Some people are saying abolition isn't really possible. And so in the meantime, we need to improve conditions of confinement and opportunity access while we make, while we make abolition possible. Um, and I can give you an example of attention that I think illustrates the debate between abolition and reform pretty clearly. So I had mentioned earlier that I used to volunteer uh, with this horticultural therapy program on Rikers Island in New York. And back in 2015, um, there's an advocate, Glenn Martin, who started the Close, right, the Close Rikers campaign. And Rikers was a new, notorious jail. Uh, there is a culture of violence that is very deeply embedded in Rikers. Um, there would be people sitting there languishing for years and years, never going to trial. And that's very common of the criminal justice system in the States, by the way, is people sitting in jail, unable to pay their bail, never going to trial, eventually pressured into accepting a plea deal just to be able to get home sooner. I think the record on Rikers was somebody sitting there for seven years without ever going to trial. So yeah, it's, it's unthinkable. And so there was this close Rikers campaign. Um, and finally, after a lot of advocate work, the mayor said, okay, we're going to close Rikers. And they started the process of decarceration. So identifying people who could be released early, who, who could be diverted, that kind of thing. But in the meantime, there was this understanding that people are still going to be arrested and detained. So where are they going to go if we're closing Rikers? So they started the process of designing new jails with more humane facilities. And my executive director at College and Community Fellowship was actually on the Close Rikers Design Committee. And the committee was working to do things like get input from impacted people about what their preferences were. So for example, on Rikers, there was a women's facility and a men's facility, and uh, there were gonna be four new borough-based jails. And the question was to the women, do you want there to be one location where every but all the women will go and it will have a nursery and have adequate women's health care or would you prefer that women are sort of incarcerated um 
closer to where they lived. So that way it'd be easier for visitors to get there. So that's the kind of input they were looking for. They were trying to create facilities that were easily accessible to visitors and families and also put them more physically in the community and with community spaces attached to them. So to really encourage the idea that people who are incarcerated are not no longer part of the community, they're still part of the community. These were the kinds of questions going into these new jails. Then we see this counter advocacy from this group that called themselves No New Jails. And they were saying, no, when we said close Rikers, we did not mean replace it with more jails. We meant close Rikers. We meant invest in communities. If you build new facilities, then you are investing in the perpetuation of this injustice. And both sides had directly impacted people, formerly incarcerated people, families of incarcerated people, arguing for each of their sides. And they each had very valid reasons for being on the given side. So for example, I think it's pretty obvious what the valid reason is for saying no new jails. On the other hand, there were people who were saying, yes, but my loved one is currently sitting in a jail where there's mold on the walls. And if that person can be moved to a facility that doesn't have mold on the walls, I would like that. So improving these conditions of confinement. I'm not the authority on this. It's hard for me to say what I personally think because it's very difficult for me to untangle what I think, particularly being a person who um, has experience working in this field, but still has no direct experience with the criminal justice system. But that's, I think that is a really good illustration of the tension between reformers versus abolitionists. Yes, I think so. And as you mentioned, it sort of goes to the heart of a, you know, the age old question of progressive politics, reform versus versus revolution or emancipation. And also you touched on there a dynamic, you know, what, what's been called sometimes the prison industrial complex, the, you know, that the size of the industry now means that there are a lot of people whose livelihoods depend on mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah. you mentioned the bail bonds industry. That's just one aspect of it. Yeah, there's also contractors who provide um, the food and the healthcare, both of which are very poor quality, by the way. In fact, in Rikers, there was rat poison found in some of the food. Jesus. Um, yep. <laughs> um, and then there are private prisons as well, which are a pretty small slice of the pie, but there are prisons that do literally exist for profit. But even most of the people who are locked up in the states are locked up in publicly owned prisons and jails, but those publicly owned prisons and jails are still contracting out services to for-profit companies. Yes. And, and of course, that, that brings us on to per, perhaps prospects for reform under the current administration. There was an executive order, executive action by Joe Biden in relation to, to private prisons. But as you say, they're, they make up a pretty small proportion of the total. Yeah, so um, about 9% of people who are locked up in the States are in private prisons. And I don't want to diminish that because mm. the population is so huge that 9% equals almost 300,000 people. Mm. And just for comparison, Ireland's entire prison population is 8,000 people. I actually remember when I first moved here, I heard somebody from the Irish Penal Reform Trust on the radio 
And she was saying that about 75% of women who are convicted of a crime are sent to alternatives to incarceration. So diversion programs, whether those be um, substance treatment programs or community service. And she was saying, this is unacceptable. This is not enough. We have to get it up to as close to 100% as possible. And I remember thinking that is incredible. That would be an amazing achievement if the states had 75% of people arrested being diverted from prison and 8,000 people, you could know 8,000 people, you could know all of those people's names. And in the States, there are so many people who are just lost to the system, just completely Mm -hmm. lost. But I digress. No, well, I I do think that's an important point to touch on. I I know the journalist, um, Chris Hedges has referred to it as the American gulag. I had not heard that, but it's, I wouldn't disagree. Well, it does seem yeah. to, to get at the, yeah, the scale. And as you said, the, the lost lives. Um, and Ireland, yeah, and is, Ireland is by no means a poster child, you know, by European standards. No, no, it's certainly not. Um, but in terms of the scale, there is one more thing that I did want to say, which is that Please. there is no possible way that this podcast episode can even begin to scratch the surface of the scale and the enormity and the horror of the American criminal justice system. Mm. And I just want listeners to know that there are reams of literature on this. Advocates at city, state, local levels, federal levels working on reform, 77 million people with a criminal record, with a personal experience in this system. And there are so many things that I would love to talk about that it will just not be possible to get to on this episode. Um, And I think that's really important for people to know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, But you had asked about Biden. Yeah, so what what do you think are some of the issues that are potentially gonna come up in the lifetime of of this administration? What can he do or what do you think he's likely to do? Yeah, I do want to say, you know, neither Biden nor Harris have a particularly sparkling track record when it comes to criminal justice. Um, As we mentioned, Biden helped author the 1994 crime bill with absolutely devastating consequences and has defended that and has not accepted all the calls to defund the police. Um, Harris, her record is a little bit more kind of back and forth. Um, And she was more progressive than other prosecutors at the time that she was the district attorney for California, but she did some pretty horrible things. For example, she developed an anti-truancy program that targeted the parents of children who were skipping school and threatened them with prosecution and punishment. That was her idea for an anti-truancy program. And when there was that Supreme Court decision that came down saying you need to reduce the numbers of people in California prisons because this is cruel and unusual punishment. Um, She was the attorney general and her office refused to release thousands of people who were deemed low risk uh, with absolutely no explanation. Like she literally kept people incarcerated in overcrowded prisons for no reason and said that the Supreme Court did not have the jurisdiction on this matter. So both Harris and Biden have the power to completely change their legacies at this point. And we know that Joe Biden ran on 
one of the most criminal, one of the most progressive criminal justice platforms in generations. We also know just for example, so part of the work of the advocates that I used to work with um, was they created in October, 2019, the first ever presidential town hall for directly impacted people. So they invited candidates for president to come and actually speak directly with formerly incarcerated people to talk about criminal justice reform. And Kamala Harris was one of the only people that showed up. She showed up, Booker showed up, Steyer showed up, Bernie didn't show up, Elizabeth Warren didn't show up. Okay. Um, so there is, there is this artifice may be too cynical a word. <laughs> uh, Unnecessarily. There is, this, <laughs> there is this attempt to change the legacy. Um, and one thing that I think is also important to know is that at the federal level, there is very limited power to do criminal justice reform because it's not one criminal justice system. It is many smaller systems working imperfectly together. And most of the decisions that have led us to this point were local and state level decisions. So they have to be local and state level solutions. So there's already minimal power that the president has to change things. That being said, after Trump, I think we all recognize the importance of the ideas that a president puts out and the type of language a president uses. So that's one area where so far Joe's doing okay. There's also the opportunity to provide federal grants that are accessible to local and state governments and to nonprofits that incentivize innovative solutions to the criminal justice problems that we have. And we also know that Biden has, he's put a lot of good stuff into his, into his platform, right? Um, he's put a ban on police chokeholds. He's put decriminalization of marijuana and expungement of marijuana convictions. He's put eliminating cash bail. He's put a hundred percent guarantee of housing for all people released, reduction of collateral consequences, adequate gynecological care for women's facilities, expanding alternatives to detention. There's a lot of good stuff in there, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to sit on this podcast and tell you he's going to do them all. I would be very, very surprised if he scratched the surface of those. I think actions speak louder than words, and I'm not particularly hopeful, and I'm not going to put any of my hopes in Joe Biden's basket. I'm putting my hopes in the basket of the directly impacted advocates at all levels that have been working on this for decades already and who are tirelessly continuing to work on it. Those are the people who are going to be leading us to real changes that actually affect people's lives. Again, that is not to diminish the fact that there are almost 300,000 people sitting in federal private prisons. Those are real people whose lives will be changed by this. And I don't mean to diminish the value of that or to make it seem like, oh, well, it's only 9% because 9% is so many individual people. Mm -hmm. But I do think that in the scale of things, we need to be looking at city, state, local level changes if we actually want to be achieving reforms. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the fact that, that, that Biden did end up running on that progressive platform as a reflection of how American society has changed in perhaps in a relatively short time 
you know, might be a reflection of the, you know, the mass Black Lives Matter demonstrations people saw last year and, and the change in, in popular mm -hmm. re rhetoric on, on these issues. Yeah, and I think um, media ar around this has been huge. Um, I think Orange is the New Black did a lot for the criminal justice movement. Really? Piper Kerman is a very nice lady, by the way. <laughs> She's not really like that character. Okay. <laughs> she is a tireless advocate for reform. Um, she teaches literature in a prison in Ohio. Um, I think that other types of media, so I had mentioned Brian Stevenson a little bit earlier. Um, Brian Stevenson is a death row lawyer and the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is behind um, the memorial to lynching victims um, in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and he wrote a book called Just Mercy, which asks a very important question. And the question is not, do people deserve to die, but do we deserve to kill? Um, and his book, that, which was turned into a movie, I think was big, 13th, I think was big. Um, the New Jim Crow and Michelle Alexander does a really good column in the New York Times. Those are big. So I think that um, the conversation about criminal justice reform has moved mainstream over the last 10 years or so in a way that is completely due to um, advocates for reform. And I do think that the Black Lives Matter movement has really made that skyrocket. But the Black Lives Matter movement also was built on the precedent of the advocates who had been working even before then. Mm. Um, you mentioned you wanted to talk about maybe some other kind of hopeful stories or things that make you optimistic. Yeah, I wanna, you know, we've talked a little bit about the human cost of the criminal justice system. Um, and I think we should also talk about the joy that we see and the inspiration that we can see coming from people who've experienced it firsthand. So, for example, in 1994, when federal student aid was revoked for incarcerated students, the women in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in upstate New York banded together, pulled together all the resources they could find, and they were able to find funding and buy-in to start up a college program again while they were incarcerated. These were, these were some of the, you know, the founding people of the organization that I worked for incredibly resilient people. Um, there was someone, it was the 20th anniversary of my organization. So I was uh, interviewing some of our students past and present for um, a like a little kind of 20th anniversary celebration. And so I was on the phone with them, with one of them uh, last June, this woman, Mimi, who was working on all of these different types of advocacy issues during COVID. And I asked her like, how's the lockdown treating you? Like, how's, how's COVID going for you? And she goes, oh, this is nothing. I've been locked up before, but this time I have gadgets. And like the smile on her face just really put things into perspective. I have two very, very dear friends who've been impacted. One of them was incarcerated for several decades. And since getting out of prison less than 10 years ago. She has built her own house, 
saved enough money for both of her nephews to go to college, uh, has a bunch of side hustles just for fun, just because she's like, I was inside for so long. Now that I'm out, I want to do everything. And she can bench press a lot of pounds. I don't know how many, but it looks like a lot to me. <laughs> then there is I'll, this person I'll say by name. Imani Davis is one of my dearest friends. And she is the daughter of Jomo Davis, um, who was the leader of the Attica prison uprising. And she was basically raised among civil rights leaders and veteran reformers and Black Panthers. And she has this incredible perspective on the movement. And she is now starting her own project that is going to be offering sustainable healing through cognitive rewiring techniques for people who have been exposed to chronic racial trauma. Wow. Like this is the kind of stuff that comes out of there's Glenn Martin, the advocate who started the close Rikers campaign had been to Rikers several times mm. and he's responsible for, for that jail being closed. Like that is the kind of thing that we see coming out of this community. Um, and I really think we can't overlook that. And another thing that I wanna say in relation to the kind of inroads to reform and abolition is giving you some examples. Um, I've already given some examples of the type of advocacy work that's happening, but as I mentioned, um, district attorneys have a lot of power and there are some really interesting district attorneys out there right now. So in San Francisco, you have Cheza Boudin. His mother is Kathy Boudin who uh, works at the Columbia Center for Justice. She's a co-founder of it. Um, and she was in the news for a long time for a pretty high profile case. And she was locked up for several decades. And Chesa has now been elected district attorney in San Francisco. Um, his first policy was a program that diverted primary caregivers of minor children from prison. And then he followed that with elimination of cash bail. And he's currently working on um, some policies protecting workers' rights in the gig economy, um, eliminate elected prosecutors from receiving campaign contributions from police unions, and his office has stopped prosecuting people who are charged with possession of contraband uh, during pretextual traffic stops, meaning people who were stopped in traffic for no good reason at all, which as we know is a thing that happens to black people. Then we have the district attorney in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, also eliminated cash bail. Um, I mean, he's got his own problems with, with the Pennsylvania state legislature trying to strip him of his powers, uh, but definitely he's someone on our side. Um, we have the New York district attorney race, uh, which has been fantastic. Somebody just dropped out of it, Janos Martin, who was a huge advocate who had worked in the nonprofit side, the, advo the advocacy side for many years. Um, but we've still got on the running Lucy Lang, who had been the assistant district attorney for several years. And she actually initiated a program that put prosecutors in criminal justice classes with incarcerated people as their classmates. So they would take those classes sitting side by side. And that was a really transformative program that really humanized incarcerated people for the, those who would be responsible for locking them up in the first place. So these mm. are all things that we can see happening. We have formerly incarcerated people getting um, elected to slate 
to state legislatures. There's Tara Simmons in Washington, the first formerly incarcerated person elected to the Washington state legislature. There is Kemba Smith, who was the poster child for mandatory ending mandatory minimums. Um, and she is now the state advocacy campaign director for the ACLU of Virginia. And I think what we need to recognize is that people who have lived through contact with the system have the best insight on how to change it. And those are the people whose lead we should be following. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to tell you, related to higher education, in the last please. stimulus bill, after 20 years of advocating, federal Pell restoration happened. We were able to actually get that higher education grant, that needs-based higher education grant restored for incarcerated people. This was a huge win for our community. Like, I can't even overstate how big that is. Wow, okay. Well, that's really, that's really good to hear. I wonder if, finally, as you mentioned earlier, in a sense, Mel, we, we can only, you know, scratch the surface of this topic um, in, in this forum. But I wonder if, if there are any resources you could draw people's attention to if, if they wanted to learn more. Yeah. Um, so I definitely recommend reading The New Jim Crow. Um, watching 13th. I also recommend reading some books that are by formerly incarcerated people about their experiences. So there's a fantastic one called Becoming Ms. Burton by Susan Burton, who runs a new way of life program out in California. Um, that one is uh, incredible. There is a book called Until We Reckon by Danielle Sered. Uh, which talks about the reckoning that we need to have with violent crimes if we are to actually have any sustainable change in the system. There is another one called What We Know, and that is a collection of essays by formerly incarcerated people, um, their musings on solutions for the criminal justice system. And I also think for people who are just like, oh, wait, I need to just get a better handle on what is all this, mm. Google the Whole Pie Prison Policy Initiative. The Whole Pie is an annual report that comes out that shows a very clear breakdown of the entire population of people under correctional supervision in a given year. So you can really see who's in state jails, who's in immigration detention centers, who's in federal prisons, and it does some myth-busting around it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> for example, releasing all people who are convicted of nonviolent drug offenses will change the criminal justice system. Like, no, that's not, that's not gonna happen. Um, so I would say Prison Policy Initiative has some great stuff. There's another great report called Because She's Powerful published by SE Justice Group, that's E-S-S-I-E, -S -S -E, um, that talks about the ways that women have carried their communities when so many men have been removed from those communities. There is the National Council of Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. Uh, there is so much out there. You can Google the Justice Votes Town Hall and watch that presidential town hall that I mentioned earlier. 
So, I mean, the list goes on and on, but I think once you start reading, it will be very clear where to go from there. <laughs> mm. Well, Mel, I'm so uh, grateful to you for sharing your, your time and your knowledge and your insights with us. Um, is, I just wonder, is there anything you want, anyone or any organization you want to shout out while you're here? If you are interested in the work that I had done on higher education access, go to collegeandcommunity.org. Take a look at the work that they're doing. And if you can support, please support. That money is going to equipping directly impacted people with the tools and the knowledge and the resources and the confidence that they need to lead the change into the future. Thanks so much, Matt. Yeah, thanks, William. That's it from us this week at Review from the Ditch. I want to say thanks again to our guest, Melanie Steinhardt. You can write to us at aviewfromtheditch at gmail.com. Our theme music was performed by Natalie Nikasija and Irlo O'Donnell. And you also heard a pair of songs which were recorded in American prisons in the 1930s by John Lomax. The Longest Day I Ever Lived and God Moves on the Water. The singers were John Brown and Lightning Washington and other prisoners who were unidentified. <laughs>